1: Hello and welcome to Smart Money Simplified with Brent Mikosh. Brent, how are you? As always, Eric, I'm doing fantastic. How about yourself? Oh man, I'm I'm excited. We're coming off of a a great holiday weekend. You scheduled this podcast and and I was thinking, you know what, I know you're bringing on a guest. The last few guests you've had have been phenomenal. And this one I think is probably gonna top them. Who did you bring on the show? Tell the audience you brought on. I'm really
2: excited about this. So I'm bringing in Lester Young and I came across Lester or, or learned about his work on LinkedIn. I'm not, not a big social media guy, not too company does some stuff on Facebook and Twitter, but I'm a big fan of LinkedIn. I think it's fantastic. And, and Lester had initially popped up on my feed talking about encouraging companies to hire people that have been previously incarcerated. We've got a, we've got a huge prison population in this country and uh, it's a real inspiring message. And, and I'll let Lester tell more of his own story, but you were sentenced to life in prison at the age of 19, correct?
3: Yes, I was. I was, um, well, Even before that, I, I remember my first encounter with uh, the prison system was when I was 17 years old. Um, and at 17 years, I ended up doing about 90 days, like a military boot camp type uh, ordeal. And about 18 months later, when I turned 19, I was sentenced to life in prison. And I served a total of 22 years and five months in South Carolina the prison system.
2: And, and one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you, and, and we'll get in more story because I want to hear a lot more about it, Is I really think that, you know, we talked about this a little bit before we started recording. Everybody's feeling pretty beat down right now. Uh, Society feels beat down overall, whether it's you know economically, whether it's socially. There's just a lot of negativity out there, and I'm so inspired by your story. I've listened to a number of interviews that you've done with other people, been on your website, and having been through something pretty dramatic, I would say that 22 years behind bars without without your freedom. It's, that to it's, it's come out and not only be as optimistic as you have been, but also so willing to help other people and and putting your life's energy now into into helping people. hopefully find that you might have made some bad decisions in the past, find a, find a better way moving forward and, and just bringing bring what you've learned, what you've learned to, to the world, I think is wonderful.'m I'm, I'm excited about this conversation. But I guess the first question I would have for you, tell me about growing up what what got you because we can talk about the day you went to prison and i'm curious about that but what's the background how did you how did you grow up what was what was your life like as as, as a young kid
3: i would say you know when when, when i think back on recall back on my upbringing i had a fairly decent upbringing you know from i said from zero from as a infant all the way into my teenage years it was fairly decent but then I look at one mo—not a period in my life that shifted me. That one one degree shift was the loss of my mother at sixteen years old, and that came as a result of me, my mom's having an argument over me washing dishes one night, and I did not realize how sick my mother was that night. She requested me to wash dishes, but that was a moment for me. I remember just rebelling, and uh, she she said, "When your father come back come back home from playing golf." Um, I'm gonna tell him, and hopefully he disciplined was that was gonna I'm gonna get disciplined for disrespecting her uh, and not adhering to her, uh, her request. And I went to bed that night, um, really extremely upset when my mom didn't say anything. I ate dinner that night, not speaking to anyone. I got three other sisters didn't speak or anything. And the next morning, my father woke me up and said, hey, um, I need you to stay home with your mom because she has a doctor appointment. I was like, I'm not staying home with her. And he was like, why? And I was like, I'm not staying home. I got got a test in school, which I hated school. But my oldest sister ended up staying. And about three hours later, um, one of my family members came and informed me that my mother had passed away. So from 16 to about 25 years old, I lived with a great level of grief in pain and, and guilt that, you know, my mom's died and I, and I felt like she died uh, upset with me. So that's when my life sh- shifted that one degree shift from the most part of my growing up was a fairly decent two parent, uh, two parent home, just working. My father was a, a superintendent of a golf course. So I learned how to play golf. I had different experiences growing up, but it was just that moment and some other things just built up, not being able to express and release that anger and how I felt. I suppressed it. And that suppression turns into anger and turned into rebellion and the wayward and just continued to down spiral from there.
2: Well, I mean, it's 16. It's, you know, we all feel different levels of guilt for different things we've done in our life. But a relationship is important as your mother and yeah. feeling like that's that's the last significant interaction you had with her that must have been devastating.
3: You told me up, man, and and I, I didn't realize that at sixteen. You you just moving through life and not realizing that the core of everything how you felt was connected to that period in your life or that twenty that within twenty four hours you had an argument and the next day she's gone and she's physically gone from the earth, you know. And now you just can visit a grave site or have a picture, but you didn't have I didn't have any outlet to express to her my 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 remorse, my sorrow. I'm just saying, Mom, I'm sorry for having this. Disagreeing with you, and I wish I could replay that moment back when I wasn't able to. So that led me not being able to have, didn't have the tools at the time. And I just became like really just just rebellious all the way around. So
2: what happened after that moment?
3: Uh, the moment of after my mom's five, after your
2: mother passed away, yeah.
3: I mean, I process it differently. And the the crazy thing is that me and my father can talk about it now is that I remember looking to my father for guidance in how to process this emotion. This was the first time I experienced someone that close to me dying. People in the neighborhood die, but not your mother. Right. And my father was the type of man at the time that he did not express his feelings. So I took the lead from my father. He suppressed it. I suppressed it. You know, and we went on like that. My entire, my three sisters, we all lived in that way of suppressing our emotions, never spoke to a counselor. And we very rarely spoke about the loss of a month, our mother at that time, you know, and for years, for months, I looked at my father and I never saw him cry. So I interpreted that I'm not supposed to cry either, that I'm supposed to hold this in. But for me, it started like tearing me apart and I started finding myself drifting off into experimenting with marijuana drinking and that drinking and marijuana led into me getting involved in violence and hanging out more rebelling led into selling drugs. And it just, it not continued to be like a bad snowball effect for me.
2: So you mentioned your first experience with the prison system. You're 17. So pretty shortly after your mother died. Like um,
3: after my mom's died. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah. And so you get out, obviously um, what were the, what were the lessons if any, that you took away from that first stint?
3: I, to be honest, I, I didn't get anything out of it. And, and, and this is why I always say that this is why I'm passionate about working with young people, because I, I feel that the, you were sentenced to serve a certain amount of time in the prison facility to help rehabilitate you. But in that 90 days, I sat there, I sat and did more. I learned how to do push-ups, jumping jacks. I did a lot of calisthenics, but nothing really was helping me process that that phase of my life, that emotional component of my life, which was the grief. So I walked out of prison physically fit at 17, but I was not still emotionally equipped to process it. So I again, here it is, I did this 90 days and I went right back within a short period of time. I was right back into the same lifestyle because again, I was not emotionally mature enough to even process this stuff. And no one never asked me that question. And that's the thing that when I go back into a prison now, I always ask the individuals, what happened? How could I help? Because I felt like if a correctional officer at that time or a counsel at that time uh, would have asked those questions or would have been able to see that, yo, four months after this man's uh, mother died, he's in trouble. That could be the, the, the tip of the iceberg. But no one never really looked at the, the beneath the surface. They just looked at the action, the crime that I committed, and I was sentenced to, to 90 day prison sentence and never went to beneath the surface. And I didn't have the tools either to understand the ice the iceberg effect. So again, I just continue this stuff, continue to build, 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 build and exploded at 19.
2: Do you think that you would have ha- had someone asked you that question, you know, and said, Lester, what's going on here? Obviously your mother just passed away. Something's happening. People, people can be helped if they want to be helped. Yeah, Do you yeah. think that you would have been open to, to having that, that, that level of deep conversation at that point in your life?
3: I think that, if it was consistent, it has to, you can't just come like, you know, you, when, when your family members die, the pastor, rabbi, whomever, say, hey, let us know if there's anything we can do to help you, right? But no one never come back. I never saw my family pastor come back after that. No one from the church never came back two weeks later and checked in. So there was a lack of inconsistency there, right? Um, so I believe that now there has to be a level of trust when trust is built through consistency. I believe I would have opened up. I believe I would have opened up, you know, and even with my father now, like when I mentioned me and my father have conversations around this, I'm like, I wish my father had some tools, some better tools to help us process. I hope, I wish he would have went into counseling as well, because he lost a woman that he was in a relationship for almost 20 years and I know he was grieving. So he turned to drinking a little more, hanging out a little more. So again, I'm looking for a male figure. My dad didn't even have the adequate tools to process his own personal grief, right? And so that's why I said, I think things would have been different if someone would have came to me and we would have built a level of trust and gave me some tools. I think that my life would have been totally different at that time.
2: It's interesting because one of the things that, that, that I've wondered is in some cases, as men specifically, I think that we... It's considered a sign of strength if you don't show that emotion, show that feeling, Um, particularly if you're younger. I mean, very different situation, but my parents divorced when I was 18 years old. And that really shook me up in a big way. And had you asked me then, is this, and and there was things I did behaviorally that weren't great and got into some stuff I shouldn't have gotten into as well. And was pretty lucky in a lot of ways, that no no permanent damage done. But if you'd asked me then if um, everything was okay, despite everything I was doing, I would have said, yeah, everything's just fine. Yeah, I'm you know, good. So yeah, I'm good. It's, all, it's all good. But, you know, I think there's, there's that fine line between, between people exploring their emotions, but then also clinging to that victimhood. And I think, and, and, and I don't know what the answer is there, because I think we got too much victimhood in our society right now. And so what do you think that line is between expressing yourself, recognizing that, that there's some vulnerability and some weakness maybe that you're dealing with, but not becoming a victim? Does that question make sense?
3: Yeah, it does. And and this was going back again to, you know, maybe a little stepping ahead. But this is where I begin to have the shift when I started taking ownership versus seeing myself as a victim. Right. Right. And on so many levels, on so many levels, from my crime to I'm sentenced for the first couple of years of my incarceration at 19 until about 22, 23. I had this victim like, yo, the court did me wrong. The judge did me wrong. My race because I'm this color. Because of the community I was in, I had a list of things that allowed me to be the victim. And I and I stayed in that state. And it was comfortable. But when I was pushed out of that state and understood the power of ownership for my decisions, my role that I played in it, this is where my life began to change for me. So I believe so, it. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm finished. Go ahead.
2: So so take me now. You're 19. Mm-hmm. So you had, obviously, 90 days, 90 days, in incarcerator boot camp, if you want to call it that. Yeah. You come out, start, start doing the same stuff you are doing before. What happened to land you in prison?
3: What happened? Um, when I walked out, I went right back. I started selling drugs right at 17 years old, 18, 19 years old, selling drugs. So at 19, uh, December the 25th, uh, uh, 24th, Christmas Eve night, this one particular night, uh, there was an armed robbery taking place, uh, individuals attempting to rob me of some drugs. So in this process, I end up shooting this person, the person ended up dying. And that sent me, uh, I was convicted of murder for drug, de- uh, a bad drug deal went bad. And I, that's when I got sent to prison for a 20-year life sentence that I had to serve a, to- a total of 20 years before I became eligible for parole. Um, And and that's when it started for me. It took a minute for me to actually process that because, again, I was like I even though I was selling drugs, I felt like this person was completely wrong for trying to rob me of it. But as I looked at it, I still was in the wrong place. I shouldn't have been doing this particular thing. And that does not didn't warrant to take this human being life over a drug dispute. You know, Um, it was not a malicious thing. It was more so protecting myself. But unfortunately, this person ended up dying in the process. Um, And it took me a while to even process that, to even accept that my role that I played in that. Because, again, I blamed the individual for the action that reason why I was sentenced to life until I really took been able to scale this thing back and realize that um, I was not a victim in this situation. I was intentional. I knew what I was doing. And unfortunately, someone died and I had to take ownership for the loss of this individual's life. And in that whole process, this is where I started uh, beginning to find ways to bring about a reconciliation with this because now, not only was I dealing with the uh, the guilt of my mother now, right? Um, so I've been, been living with that guilt of my mother privately. And now here it is, I'm sitting in prison sentenced to life. And I have to deal with the fact now that someone else has died as a result of my actions, my decision-making. So that grief and and, and the gravity of all of that was so heavy on me, man. It was so heavy that I didn't even know if I was going to survive prison, you know what I'm saying? I didn't know if I was going to survive that situation.
2: I mean, how do you rap? You're 19 and you know that you're going to go away for longer than you've been alive, longer than you've been on this planet, mm-hmm. and at, at minimum, maybe forever.
3: Yeah.
2: How do you possibly intellectualize that? How do you, what was that first day in prison like?
3: Uh, that first day in prison, man, was it was defeating. It was it was defeating um, hopelessness. I was I felt like I felt completely broken. I felt lost. I didn't want it to fight. I like you said, I when I started counting the days, like I was sentenced in nineteen ninety two, and my first L- parole eligibility was in two thousand twelve. Like that was hard to intellectualize. You know, like how in the world am I going to get from? 90 from the 90s into the 2000s, all the way into the early 2000s, but it was just over a period of time through my faith, man. My faith, um, I started building my faith, and and my faith gave me that hope to just start learning to take one day at a time. Don't look at how high the mountain is; just keep taking steps. And as you, every step that I was taking, I felt like I was getting closer. But when I started doing that interpersonal work, which made things a little more easy for me you know, meaning that now I found a purpose that I was able to connect to, to be able to pull me up to 2012. I didn't make parole until 2014. So I ended up doing 22 years. So when I got to the mountain in 2012, I got pushed right back down. I got pushed down the mountain again and said, you have to climb this mountain again, just for two more years. And and I consider you again. So now I have to learn, but what I learned in that twenty-two years of climbing the mountain, I learned a lot of things, right? So I was able to maximize that twenty-two, those two years, and be able to really benefit from that pushback because I was like, "This is the reason why they push me back. I'm going to become a stronger person as a result of that." But it, it took a lot of work, brother. It took a lot of work.
2: So, what's the catalyst from from absolute despair? To all of a sudden a glimmer of hope to all of a sudden getting momentum to where you realize that you can that you can make it to 2012 and then ultimately
3: 2014. It was um, it was a combination of, of, as I mentioned, my faith uh, breaking out of that prison of victimization, um, acknowledging my actions. I remember there was a night I was inside a prison, my prison cell um, broken and I was calling on God. And it was like this voice told me, said, I have forgiven you, but you have to reach out to your victim you know, you have to speak to him. And I'm like, how do I speak to someone who's no longer here? And it was like, speak to his spirit. And in that moment, man, it was like God placed his, I'm gonna mention his name, his name is Gary Goldinger Jr. And placed him in my room and we sat in, I sat in this dark cell crying like an infant and, and and making that connection with his spirit of apologizing for him. That began the process of allowing me to release my pain and then from there, I remember telling Gary spirit, I said, I would honor your life as long as I have life in my body by doing the right thing, that I would never look back to selling drugs, criminality, that would not be my thing ever again. And I would do my best to help use my story and your story as it's connected to help prevent someone else. And that began that process for me to start finding hope. And from there, I began doing journaling and understanding the power of starting my day with gratitude versus the victimization, blaming the blame game. So gratitude, faith, making reconciliation with Gary's spirit and his and the idea of what I did began that process. And that's when I started finding hope, man. I started believing that if I'm going to serve, if I die in prison, I said I was okay with that because if I would die in prison, I'm going to die a different man in prison. I'm not going to die as a drug dealer. I'm not going to die as this murderer who just went to prison and never changed. I'm going to die as a person who found redemption in prison and he used every, every, every second, every minute inside of his prison cell to make an impact. And it was all about how do I honor the life of Gary Goldinger's life and his family that when I was, and I was also like, I don't want Gary Goldinger's family who was alive to ever look on some newspaper or in a prison and say that Lester did not change and he's still dishonoring my, my, my brother or my loved one. I said, anytime they would ever, my name would ever come up in the news or anything, I wanted to be associated with honoring their brothers and their loved one life by doing the right thing. So that gave me the motivation daily. Uh, to continue to be fo- move forward. And that was my way of saying, hey, i'm I am internally uh, re- remorseful for my action, and this is the best I can do. If I die, I want die with a legacy that I've honor him by doing the right thing. And that's that's then that gave me the motivation every day.
2: did you come in did you come into your time in prison with an existing religious faith, or did you find it in prison?
3: Well, I think that i my religious faith was more defined uh, inside of prison. Um, because of because of the, the the dejection and the hopelessness my father and my mother always raised me with a belief in God but when you're living and you you don't feel hardship you you okay God is like the second or the third third person thing in your life but it is not the primary thing but inside of prison I I either could have cling to drugs and alcohol in prison or engage in the prison culture or I could find faith right? And, and make God the priority. So, again, my father used to come up like every weekend and he would always emphasize faith. Prayer and faith change things, son. That's what he would always tell me. And I started latching on to that. So, I started fasting like twice a week. I started reading. I started praying. I stopped drinking uh, the prison wine. I didn't smoke marijuana anymore. I didn't do none of those things. I just really wanted to get in my right state of mind. And that faith became the paramount in my life to this very day. Um, it's still the same way.
2: So as you're undergoing these changes, how are you being treated by the rest of the population?
3: Uh, it was a challenge, man. Um, it was a challenge because in prison is not the norm uh, for one to bring about true transformation. Um, it, it, people have looked at me and said, hey, man, you serving life. Why, why are you doing this? Why are you reading a book? Why are you doing this? You know, like I remember there were times my first couple of years in prison, was, those activities I engaged in. Um, but when I started making this reconciliation and started taking ownership and started moving forward, I remember going to school, I I, I went to school, I went to prison reading at a seventh grade level of education. So I was like, I'm going to make a commitment to get a GED, at least that, and whatever the opportunity comes, I'm going to take advantage of it. And people laughed at me in prison. I was like, man, you got a life sentence. You never, you're going to die in prison. Why would you do this? And this is when I realized the power of self-talk. I had to learn how to reclaim my voice as a person, something I lost from 16 all the way until about 25. I allowed others to speak for me. And I said that this is a moment I'm going to have to reclaim my own voice and I'm going to have to speak life over my life. Right. Because I found that I started believing what people would tell me. So you never get out of prison. I started seeing my behavior, started conforming to that belief. But when I started waking up and creating this this journal of gratitude and not speaking positive affirmation of my life, like I'm going to get out of prison, 2012 will be here, these different, I am this, those things started giving me that willpower that I lacked at 16, 17, all the way up to my 20, 25 years old, I lacked that willpower to break away from the herd. And by those affirmations, I was able to break away from the herd and people laugh for a period of time. But as I continue to live my life in that path to redemption, these same people who laughed at me now wanted me to help them find peace because I had peace in my life under the most chaotic circumstances. I was more at peace with my life in the circumstances versus them. They were still trying to find ways to intoxicate themselves, to escape the reality. I was cool with the reality of my circumstances and it changed from my perspective.
2: Were you able to develop a community of people that were on that same path with you?
3: It took some time. It took some time, and this going back again to leadership for me. I didn't. I didn't realize that I was. I was a leader um, for a long time. I thought I was just a person who followed trends and cultures and all that stuff, but. When I started embarking upon this journey of of redemption, I started creating my own tribe of people. I started becoming that example for other people. Now, people are now coming to classes that I started teaching in the prison system. They started coming and listening to me. I started becoming a mentor. I've started becoming an influencer in a positive way in the environment. But it took a period of time because people, going back again to trust, people want to know, is this really true? Is he really transforming his life? And I, I experienced that from the prison staff, all the way down to those who are currently incarcerated with me, as well as my family. Is this a joke? Are you really just doing this just to get out? You still got fifteen more years in prison. Or are you going to be true to this thing your entire time? And and over my twenty-two years, I stayed consistent in that in that in that path to redemption for twenty-two years. I was consistent. I did not. I mean, not twenty-two, but my last eighteen years of my incarceration, I stayed in that in the and what I call in the pocket. I trust the process, and I stayed in the pocket. I stayed in my lane, and I just allowed myself to grow from there. And people started gravitating to me because they saw that I had something that they were yearning for, even before incarceration. That was a sense of inner peace.
2: So, so you're eligible for parole in 2012? Mm-hmm. Um, after all the good work that you've done, I imagine it was probably really disappointing that they, they gave you another two years. They come on back, and we'll, we'll yeah. talk. We'll talk in 2014.
3: It was. Was
2: there any step back associated with that? Or were you able to just keep plugging?
3: I kept, you know, I remember it it like knocked the wind out of me like, oh, you know, I remember going when I got, when I uh, got denied, I went, I used to work inside of the prison chaplain. And one of my biggest mentors, a a person that I love to this very day, his name is chaplain uh, Gerald Patoka, prison chaplain. And, and I remember walking in the door and he gave me like this, this father, bear, big bear hug. He's like, son, you're going to be Okay. You know, he became like a father figure to me because I, I didn't see my father as often as I would see him. I saw him every day. And he was that one that poured wisdom into me. And he said, um, he said, know that everything's going to be OK. He said, keep moving. So um, he said, I'm going to give you a couple of days to just um, regroup and come back. He said, don't stop teaching. So I remember I went back to my dormitory and within an hour, I was back in front of a class teaching. And, and, and the whole purpose of that was, is to again, stay in the pocket, right? Stay in the pocket, but also to be showing people that this is, life is going to knock you down, but it's not about, it's not about the knockdown, it's about how many times you're able to pick yourself up. So that was a great blow to me, not only to me, but the prison population of people, because now they started saying that if Lester got denied for parole, I know I don't have a chance, right? And that was a narrative that they started creating in their heads. And I'm like, I have to shift that I have to show them that uh, a denial, being denied of something doesn't mean that it's going to be a forever thing. It's only a period. And I had to show them that it's all about perspective. So every day, within an hour after me being denied, I was back in front of a class teaching. And it was was helpful for me to flush out and not stay focused on what has missed me, but focus on the next two years. And I started creating a game plan for the next two years and I kept moving forward.
2: Uh, and one more question until we get, Now, I really want to talk about your post-prison life because you've done some pretty remarkable things. Looking back on your time in prison, though, is there a common thread among the men that you met in prison? Is, is there something that society can look at and say, you know what, if we fix this, then maybe we can reduce the incarcerated population by, you know, pick a number?
3: There's, there's a lot, man. I, I, I'll, going back again, we'll be talking about financial literacy, right? When you look at the, the, who make up the majority of the prison population, those who come from impoverished communities, right? Um, and, and, and you, I found and met some of the most brightest-minded individuals inside of prison. But unfortunately, they were raised or brought up in the wrong environments. The environments did not have the tools that they needed to grow. So they, they gravitated to everything that was negative in the environment. So when, I, when, I, when, I, when people asked that question, I was like, when we know that the majority of the population is made up of these, these population of people, we have to look at what are some of the risk factors. Some of the risk factors come from trauma. Um, individuals who are raised in trauma environments, they continue to transfer that trauma to other people, hurt people, hurt people. The second thing was helping people understand what it means to be successful in this country. It's not just having a high school education or good college education. It's about understanding some of the basic things like Robert Kiyosaki mentioned, the rich dad, poor dad, right? It's about understanding that how his rich father, the rich dad, didn't have all of the higher education. He understood the power of financial literacy. Teaching people the power of financial literacy, teaching people how to build credit, how to grow money, right? But also with that, how to build a business. And like I said, I met some of the greatest business-minded people. I think I was a great business-minded person who sold something illegal. But imagine if I was had an opportunity to be taught entrepreneurship early on in my life, how to train, use these these skills that I had, using to create a product or a service in my community. So when I, those are the three things I believe that when we look at these communities, younger people getting involved in gangs in our community, we see a lot of the crime and a lot of these crimes are motivated because of a lack of financial, lack of finances. They look for money. And if we teach people how to earn money at a young age, how to grow money at a young age, then we can shift a lot of things that we see um, because poverty, I believe, creates trauma. When you raise in poverty, it creates trauma and it creates a level of invisibility. People who live in poverty, you you don't see them. Like we see a homeless person on the streets, we we don't want to look at them. We're drive right by them. That's invisible, right? But when you have money, it's about visibility. And that's what a lot of people do. They commit crimes because they want money so that they can be visible. And I hope that makes sense. But it's it, about I want to be seen, you know, and so when I get a little bit of money, I'm gonna buy the big jewelry, the cars the brightest color things, because I've been living in an invisible world of poverty that you didn't see me. Now I want you to see me.
2: Yeah. And it's a way you can, uh, you can assign some value to yourself. And, and we are in a, we're in an incredibly materialistic culture. There's no question about that where, you know, popular culture celebrates that it celebrates the bling and celebrates the wealth and everything else. There's no question. So 2014 parole's granted. You're a free man. How's that feel? The first day you walk out of the prison.
3: It was an unbelievable experience. It's uh, the power of visualization. It it was a confirmation of the power of visualization. I remember my mentor, Rick Jordan, um, he taught me the power of visualization. And he said, you have to see yourself free before you're free, right? And it was was about that. I remember uh, the day I went up for parole, before that, I remember sitting in my cell many nights with my eyes closed, speaking to this parole board, right? Like, literally, I remember each of their names. And I, the morning I went up for parole, they asked me, they well, they told me, they said, Lester, the computer screen isn't working. It's a blank screen. So we're going to wait. You can either wait to go up, or you can go now. But we, if you wait, we don't know how long it may be. It may be another day. It may be another week before we get this right. Would you be, are you comfortable going? And I was like, yeah, yeah, let's do this. Because I remember, this is how I saw it with my eyes closed. So it was an easy fit for me, an easy flow for me to speak to a blank screen because I spoke to the parole board for hours with my eyes closed, right? That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, It's a powerful thing. That's what I said. So when you say the visualization, I saw myself free before I was free. So when I was granted parole, um, I again was prepared for my life outside of incarceration. Again, my mentor told me, he says that when you walk out of prison, make sure you go buy a great suit and a nice pair of shoes and go a place where you see where you want to be in life. He said go to a coffee shop, go to a library, go to the mall, go somewhere, even go to a bookstore and sit. And he says that you have to be able to feel the level of success before you can actually experience it. Because he said you're going to get knocked down so many times after incarceration. But the more you believe and you see it you can be able to obtain it right and that's what and that was a game changer for me. I did exactly what you said and by putting myself in those situations for, after serving 22 years, my journey after incarceration became a whole lot easier for me because I saw it a lot of people when they walk out of prison they still don't see the life that they want to have. I wrote out a 10 a 10year plan before I even walked out of prison and my my accountability partner which is Rick, was Rick Jordan he would make sure every month that we would go over the accountability chart to make sure that I'm accomplishing these things and by that i was able to accelerate all of the goals that i had set for myself 10 years i was able to knock them out within 3 to 4 years after me being released from prison because of me seeing myself my organization path to redemption i wrote this plan out inside of prison my books i wrote it before i even walked out of prison my curriculums my coaching I wrote these things out before I walked out of prison. So when I walked out of prison, I was already ahead of most people because I already took the time. I maximized my time while I was in prison that prepared me for this because I saw myself being successful. So that's the key thing. You merge,
2: you merge into a world though. I mean, the bottom line is people might, might not want to realize it, but we're this is an economic planet. You know, You go to the grocery store, they want to get paid. You go oh. and fill up your tank of gasoline, yeah. they want to get paid. And you're coming out now with no income, at least the day you walk out the door.
3: I have
2: none. What do you do? I mean, because I think that's, that's a huge problem because I, w- I would imagine, you know, you know how people that, that might have ended up in prison for one reason or another, and whether it's selling drugs in the street or white collar crime all the way across the board, they, they know what, it, what, what they did to get there. So they know how that works. So how do you now go and earn, start earning money in, in, in a world where they might not want to hire you right away either. It
3: was challenging. I mean, I'm thankful for my family. I had family that supported me in that journey of employment because like you said, I didn't the reality was I saw myself successful, but I was not aware of the barriers that was in the way of my success. You know, I didn't know what I was not aware that after me serving 22 years it was going to be a barrier when it comes down to technology, when it comes down to employment opportunities. this comes with the stigma of incarceration. I was not aware of those particular barriers, right? So when I walked out of prison excited to take on this new life, I realized that a lot of stuff I was still behind the curve on, like just basic technology, how to use a phone, how to use a computer, going into a fast food restaurant and trying to order something and and got overwhelmed with the menu because I I have not been selecting anything off a menu in 22 years I was given everything, right? So all of that became an overwhelming experience for me. And then working uh, with someone said, "Hey, I can't pay you, I can't hire you, um, but I can. I know what he says that I can. I cannot. Uh, I'll hire you, but I'm gonna pay you under the table because you have a felony." And that meant when I get paid under the table, that meant I got paid below minimum wage, right? So I remember my first job working at this tire shop, and this guy said, "I pay you." Under the table, you can be my manager because I I got a business management degree in prison. So he's like, you got some skills. I see how you work for about a week and I'll pay you under the table. Come to find out that that payment under the table meant $50 a day. Here it is, I'm 41 years old. I'm used to money from the lifestyle I lived prior. So now you're going to pay me $50 a day. $50 was nothing, right? Uh, I was like, and then I'm working at your cash register and, I'm, <laughs> and I see the type of money you're making. Now Now I really come into a personal value thing that, about me. I have, that was a real test for me. It's like, should I take this dude money uh, you know, uh, for him trying to play me for $50? But I saw going back to into perspective, it was like, I'm only using these small things here to build up a resume to some point that is going to open a greater door for me. I just needed something to show that I am working. You know, there's an old saying, as long as you got a job, it's easy to get another job. When you're unemployed, it's harder to get a job. So this person, he felt like he was getting up on me. But my perspective was, I'm going to use this to leverage my next situation. And that's what I did. But it was a very tempting thing to get out of prison and you have these financial obligations and you don't have the money to pay for them, but you know how to get that money. Selling drugs was an easy thing and walking out of prison... Even though 22 years of incarceration, the lifestyle of drug dealing was still the same, basically, right? So it would have been an easy, easy transition for me. But going back again, that I was tied to a higher purpose. I was tied to the promise that I made with Gary. I was tied to the promise I made to Gary's family into my family. So that meant if I started working for fifty dollars, I would find a way to make more than fifty dollars. And that same company, I ended up going from fifty dollars to seven twenty-five to thirteen. You know, but I had a plan with that all. And it allowed me now that I work remote, I work for myself basically now. And that fifty dollars, I make way more than fifty dollars, but it all came back to connected to the purpose and being being able to have a perspective as you walking out of prison and having that family support for me.
2: So tell me about Path to Redemption, your organization.
3: Oh, that's, my girl, that's my baby, man. <laughs> <laughs> Path to Redemption is 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 what I as I said it's a it's a it's an organization that I founded in prison because I found that everyone in prison that I talked to was searching for their path to redemption and that was finding an inner peace and in how they could actually turn their setback into a comeback and it's really about how to transform change your mind change your behavior choices that will transform your life so that's really what it's all about it's helping those who are currently inside of the prison and those who have transitioned out of prison turn their setbacks into comebacks and helping them with basic strategies of changing their mindset and that's again from the book the five stages of incarceration i wrote to the five stages of growth these two books highlight to individuals who read them steps strategic steps and how you can break out of your own mental prison and even though you're physically in a prison you can find peace inside of a prison no matter where you are in life it's all about that inner that inner peace
2: how are you getting access to to some of these people that are incarcerated how are you getting your message into them?
3: I mean, because of my lived experience, um, I come with a level of credibility and just connecting and sharing content on various social media platforms, reaching out to various prisons and juvenile facilities and sharing my message and then sending books into the prisons. When one individual gets this copy of a book, they're going to share it with another individual. It makes it up to change to the prison chaplain. And they'd be like, hey, could you get this guy to come in and speak to us um, or do some stuff for helping us prepare for life because he knows what it feels like to walk out of prison? And that's how I've been getting a lot of um, opportunities that way. And again, I came out with a plan. I remember teaching classes, only one or two people in a class outside of when I walked out of prison. But again, I was consistent with that and consistency. Staying in that pocket allowed me to build an audience of people. Now we do pardon classes from fault classes to personal development classes to financial literacy classes. All of that, and we have a great number of people that go through these particular programs that I created because I, I stayed in the pocket. and I stayed consistent, even when it was one person or two people. I poured into them like there was a hundred people in that room.
2: Are, are the institutions receptive when you reach out to a to a facility? Are they receptive to having you come in?
3: It's uh, I, <laughs> to be honest, it, it bothers me with that because a lot of the prisons aren't. You, you would think that this is a this is a person who have. Truly displayed all of the things that rehabil- that prison is about rehabilitation, but I think the mindset of prisons, uh, of those in authority, have not shifted to see the value in the voices of those with lived experiences. They still see it as a punishment versus rehabilitation. Like right here in my home state, this is a big challenge for me. I love. I if I were to go any place, man, I'd love to go into prison all day and teach because I know what it means to be. Feeling dejected, and someone coming into a prison with a lived experience to share, but for some reason, the Department of Correction here in South Carolina don't see that value yet. Right? That's the thing that I just don't understand because it's like you invest almost—I uh, looked at almost eight hundred thousand um, dollars in my in, in twenty-two years because they have taxpayers pay between forty to fifty thousand dollars a year for a person to be housed in prison. If so, if a prison system has invested over a million dollars or half a million, or quarter million dollars into an individual for rehabilitation, that person was that positive deviant person that changed his or her behavior. Why not get the best return on your investment by using that lived experience? To me, that makes business sense, right? But understanding the system, they don't see, it's almost us against them type mindset. And hopefully that continue to change um, across the country where those in the prison, administra- the administrative part, see the value of those with lived experience to possibly bring them on, hire them on, contract them as consultants so that they can help uh, uh, prepare individuals for success after incarceration.
2: Excellent. Well, let me ask you this and people obviously everybody's dealing with their own challenges. I'm sure you've you've, you've read uh, man's search for me, meaning Viktor Frankl. Mm. You know, everybody's got some certain level of pain that they fill that box with. Mm. If anyone's listening now, maybe they're not in prison, but maybe they're, they're dealing with a real big struggle in their life. Yeah. What advice would you have for, for just people overall to, to get over that hump, get over what it is, whatever it is that's holding them back?
3: I would say a couple of points I would say. One is learn the power of affirmation. Learn the power of speaking life over your life. And, and that helps you change that, that, that running narrative in your head that, oh, I won't be able to get over this. I can't do this. But find ways to reverse that through positive affirmation. Second Uh, Create a a daily journal entry every day about gratitude. Find five things in your life every day that you're grateful for and stay consistent. Create the habit for that. Because when you stop finding five things that you're grateful for every day, it shifts your attitude. It shifts your mood. The third thing would be is find time for self-care. Like Find time to recharge, regroup, realign yourself with your purpose and your mission through finding ways to self-care. And that may just walk in the park, go running, go walking, go hiking. Find some way that you can connect with that, and third and fourth would be is find an accountability. Find someone that you can confide in to begin to share because you're not the only one going through this problem. So it's always good to have someone that you can confide in about what you're struggling with. Then that will begin to help you push through whatever challenges you face. But those are four things that just came to the top of my head. I believe that I still use to this very day. I still do journaling. I still do positive affirmations. I love hiking, and this is my moment of finding a way to recharge myself. But the la- the fifth one would be um, is is find some way to where you can go help someone else. Like I do, what I do also is I, I go like it's hot months I go and give water to those who are out in the streets that need water. And you looking helping people when you're at your lowest point, it really shows you that I'm really I really don't have it that bad. So find a way to volunteer helping something or helping someone else that is struggling worse than you. And that'll help you with your perspective. Well, you realize that, man, I don't have it really that bad. There's someone out here right now, like where I stay, that is that is homeless, sleeping outside and it's bad rain, it's a hundred degrees outside and they, they don't have air conditioning. Even though you're going through something bad in your life, you still have something in your life, right? And by helping someone else, it helps you get that perspective like, yo, you know what? I can, I can rebound back from, I can pull out of this situation because there's someone else right near to me that is doing far worse than I am. And those five things I believe helps a person, no matter how bad you're going, whatever you're going through, you'll pull out of that situation.
2: Well, Lester, this has been um, an amazing privilege for me. And I I really thank you for for carving time out of your day to talk to me. What can people do to reach out to you and, and help you and help the people that you're working with?
3: I just encourage anyone to go to path of redemption, path and number two redemption.org. Um, you could help out by sending books, helping me send books into the prisons, uh, that we can send books in county jail, juvenile facilities. just go on my website and and see what we have to offer, or even send me a message and we can talk about different ways that we can actually partner up to make a greater impact in our community. And I was This, is,
2: this has been incredible. And, and, uh, again, uh, I, I knew this was going to be a great conversation and, uh, I wish I could talk to you for another three or four hours. <laughs> I, think we'd, I think we'd have quite, and we were the same age, actually. So you were born in 73, I'm guessing.
3: No, I'm born in 72. I 72. Got like, all right. I'm Oh, I got that big 5-0 coming up like a couple months, man. I got uh,
2: next year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: Wow. Oh, so yeah. I'm thankful hey. for that.
2: Man. <laughs> hey, th- th- thank you. Thank you for this today. And uh, I just really appreciate you, you coming on with me. Thank
1: you, sir. Appreciate you. Well, gentlemen, this has been fantastic. And now I know I'm the young guy in the room in 1974, baby (laughs) (laughs) representing the youngins. All right, gentlemen, this has been fantastic. Lester, thank you so much for your time, your story, your message, your positivity. Uh, It's just been fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Brent, of course we wouldn't be here without you. Brother, you you do a great job of bringing on amazing guests. Thank you for facilitating this and being a, a gracious host. And our last thank you, of course, goes to you listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. And we humbly ask that you like the podcast, share it, and rate it as this actually helps other people find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at MP Advisors, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Money Simplified Podcast. Have any questions about topics covered during the show? Visit www.smartmoneysimplified.com or give us a call at 602 255 Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your individual situation. Securities are offered through Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated, Member FINRA, and SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors Incorporated, MP Advisors, LLC, is not a broker-slash-dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services.